This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your site for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. I can't find the rabbit to pull out of my hat. This is a sad trick. I'll pull it out of your ear. Oh, I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) This is part two of episode number 41 of Cinema Fix, focused on the movie The Incredible Burt Wonderstone. If you're looking for part one, you are listening to the wrong file. Please go away. If this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, basically this is the show on Film Geek Radio focused on in-depth discussion of mainstream blockbuster films, and each week we we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general spoiler-free discussion, and the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film, complete with spoilers, and it's designed to be listened to after you've seen the movie. Again, if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening now and go check out part one of our episode on The Incredible Bert Wonderstone. I'm not going to bother explaining the plot again, but Monica, before you and I dive into it, here's another clip. And you and Bert Wonderstone plan to stay in the box an entire week? That's right, reporter. Hello? Excuse us. What are you wearing? My magician's costume, because I am a magician. The whole point of this is to update our act. You need to go change. Now, this is Vegas, baby. Look at this crowd. Okay, guys, we're ready for you. You wear that? Yes. It's velvet, Bert. You're going to die. All right, Monica, let's talk about this movie. I don't know if you know this, Monica. Alan Arkin was in this movie. Oh, I thought you were going to say, I wanted to be a magician, and that was going to go <laughs> to put the conversation in a totally different direction. Oh, yeah, I, actually, I, I, actually, I actually do like magic. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I was, really, I was really into magic, and I can still do a couple card tricks, because I'm nerdy like that. But <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so- <laughs> you went farther than I did. Um, how did you? Yes, so Alan Arkin was in this movie, and he played Alan Arkin. <laughs> yes, he played Alan Arkin as Rip Torn in Dodgeball, a true underdog story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he played the old-timey expert magician who, of course, comes out of retirement to help our heroes succeed and to train them. And it's just, it's it's a character we've seen a million times before, and the script gives him nothing new to do, and Alan Arkin is Alan Arkin, so he does what he can with it, but like most of the movie, a lot of it's not very funny. He's kind of just a grumpy Dumbledore, or Gandalf. <laughs> right, right. He leads our hero to his mor- moral quest, and then drops off. <laughs> Right. Like, from the trailers, you watch the trailer for The Incredible Burt Wonderstone, and you're like, oh, Alan Arkin's in this movie. Must be good. He must have seen something in the script he really liked. And then you go actually sit down and watch the movie, and it's like, oh, Alan Arkin. Why? He's in it for, like, what, 20 minutes? In a 90-minute movie? Yeah, but he's in it for too much, okay? <laughs> really? Oh, for for the movie? Or just his character? B- uh, both. 
<laughs> They're inseparable, actually. Sorry, that was I phrased the question wrong. Al- Alan Arkin should not be in this movie, and this character needs to be developed more because it's not a character. <laughs> or maybe not in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, this movie just... The problem is it's trying to do things that we've seen a thousand times before, and it's not doing them in any particularly new or fresh way. It's almost like the writers sat down with a dozen other scripts and were like, let's just take these scripts and make them about magic. What I said, it was almost a color-by-number script. Yes. Where it's like, here is a role, here is what happens, here is what happens after that, and then this is a new character to be introduced. Like, right. It was, it was so predictable. Yeah. Okay, Monica, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that I like magic, and I was really into magic as a teenager, and I was excited about this movie just for that, just because I'm interested in illusions and and just the whole thing. I'm so sorry. It's it's also why I've got my fingers crossed for that Louis Leterrier movie <laughs> with Jesse Eisenberg that's going to come out <laughs> later this year <laughs> because I'm into magic. Um, the thing about this movie, this movie doesn't make magic seem cool. No, it makes it seem either really insane or really outdated. Yes, it, it, it makes it seem just goofy or for losers. I had a lot of laughs over the over the Chris Angel comparison with Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey's character. Yes, that was that was interesting. The fact that he's playing the Chris Angel, David Blaine type street magician who's just gonna who who, who doesn't really do magic tricks or illusions. Yeah. He just, you know, will put his body through these incredible feats. It's not really magic as much as it's, like, endurance. (laughs) Yeah. Essentially. Unless, who knows, maybe there was some trick to being able to lie down on hot coals and uh, hold his urine for so long. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Chris Angel was in uh, one of the sister towns outside of my hometown, and he did Mm -hmm. this big old publicity stunt that, you know, all the radio shows had a thing on, and all the local media was, like, lined up outside. He's going to blow himself up inside of a hotel that was getting demolished, and he was supposed to, you know, walk out of the rubble. And so the hotel got demolished. And you had security cameras on the inside that saw you saw the charges went off, pa pa pa, and he's supposedly on the top floor or something, and then he's supposed to walk out right. miraculously or whatever. And of course, he walks out within like I don't know, not even a minute of everything going off. So of course, a lot of people were like, "Oh, I saw him come out of the back door in the hallway," and all sorts of controversy happened over that. Right. I mean, that is an interesting conflict, I think, to explore. Just the different types of "quote unquote" magic, or even just and magicians, and, yeah, performance. Because uh, they made allusion to the whole tiger act, which was Siegfried and Roy, right? Yeah, there, there's lots of different types of magicians, and that part was interesting to me. I just didn't think any of what they did with it was interesting or, or very uh, funny. And the thing is, a lot of those guys that you see like David Blaine and, and people like that who will do these physical feats 
a lot of them started out as you know your typical street illusionist and a lot of them can do you know card tricks and other types of illusions mm-hmm. this idea that they're just going to do these incredible feats that's not their only shtick and i didn't i don't know the, the movie just doesn't do anything with these ideas you know there's this whole thing about how steve carell as a child he thought magic was awesome and it used to bring him wonder and joy when I'm watching the magic tricks in this movie, I don't feel any of that wonder or any of that joy because one, it's a movie and two, it, it, it's a movie that doesn't even try to make you think it's real. Like a lot of the tricks aren't even practical effects. Like there's a scene when Alan Arkin makes a dove appear out of a salt shaker mm-hmm. and you can tell it's completely computer generated and just things like that just like really took me out of the movie and i was like that's not a real magic trick yeah so why should i actually buy into this wonder and and this respect that these characters supposedly have for the profession i think the other thing you also kind of touched upon is that because it's a movie we know about editing we know they can stop and change people around i'm thinking about the how they did the hangman uh, trick where they would switch Bert with Anton right in the beginning of the movie. Like that wasn't even suspenseful because I knew immediately. All right, stop the camera. Everybody switch around. All right, start the camera. <laughs> right. But maybe we're too old and this no longer amuses us. There's a live a- aspect that you have to have for magic. Right, and and there's there will be like little shots like of. Steve Carell or Jim Carrey, like, shuffling cards mm-hmm. really fancily, getting ready to do a trick. And I was actually more impressed with that than I was with the actual trick most of the time, because it would because I, I was thinking, oh, I wonder if Jim Carrey and Steve Carell actually practiced for a long time about how to shuffle that way and how to do sleight of hand. That was probably really interesting for them to learn how to do all that. I was more... <laughs> intrigued by the preparation (laughs) for a lot of these tricks than the tricks themselves, just because the preparation was most likely practical. Yeah. I I mean, it's also the same thing with any sort of special effects, monster effects, um, gore, horror, the same thing. Anything that looks real, that the actual blood is spreading out or the actual trick is being done, I tend to be a little more impressed. I'm more horrified by horror movies from the 80s that I am from anything nowadays. Right. Yeah. And I I also think modern audiences are a little bit harder to impress, maybe, because we've seen so much in blockbuster entertainment. It's hard to impress us. I think the film would have benefited if it had taken a step back and actually delved into the quote-unquote trick aspect of it and like explained these are how these tricks work and these these are simple tricks and this is how they're done you know there's that one moment uh in the prologue when uh bert first meets anton and later on he explains oh yeah i did that trick with the handkerchief because it was a rubber thumb mm-hmm. and that was interesting to me and i would have could be uh, just the nerd you maybe saying. maybe it's just me but i would <laughs> i i i, I would have appreciated it if after they were doing these tricks, they took the time just to mention how it was done 
just because I think that would help me understand that that would help me get over that mental block. Like that's all effects or that's all CG or they didn't really do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm. I know. I think it's also just another set of disappointments. The fact that the comedy didn't work and then the magic tricks didn't work. Right. Because if they were some mind-blowing magic tricks or something, if it was, Dave, I've seen some David Blaine's performances, and some of them are like, no way, no right. way. He just ended up with like a panther in the cage, hanging suspended above the audience. Like that's right. insane. And never once did I ever feel like afraid for them or suspenseful. Really, I again, I kind of knew where the trick was going to go, or. Well, well, it's interesting because, okay, if you compare this to a movie like The Prestige, which is also about magicians and magic. Good call. That's a movie that actually goes behind the scenes a little bit. And with Mm -hmm. some of the tricks, we'll show you, oh, we've got a trap door here, or we've got the knots tied in this way, or, you know, or or whatever. And a lot of the – that actually in some ways adds suspense because Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, are they going to be able to do it in time? Are they going to be able to pull this off and fool the audience? And it's cool when the trick goes wrong during one of those times in the prestige. And right. It, it, like, cost him. And there, there's nothing like that in Burt Wonderstone. Like, there's there's nothing like, oh, is this trick going to go wrong? Oh, how did – you know, I could understand what they're actually trying to do. Like the, like the hangman trick. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there and I was thinking, okay, clearly that is that is a – trick that only exists in this movie and that yeah. they achieved through editing. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Like, if they had just given me a thrown away line, like, oh, there's a trap door there or, or something, I would have been able to get over it and be like, oh, okay, I guess theoretically that could actually be done. Well, even like when it goes wrong because Anton's no longer there. Um, right. You actually just see Bert take off the robe, run over, put the other robe back on, and slip his head through the noose. Right. So, <laughs> so what we missed was when the camera got turned off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> got it. There, There is one scene other than the ending. And by the way, when I say the ending, I'm talking about the trick in general, not the scene that takes place uh, during the credits. Okay. Which I actually didn't care for, <laughs> believe it or not. Aww. You know, th- th- that final trick where they make the audience disappear, that was mm-hmm. fine. That was cool. And again, partly because they actually explain how- what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. And how it's going to work. The scene that did kind of make me chuckle a little bit was the scene at the birthday party. Oh, puppy in the pants? <laughs> yes. Is that what got you? That is what got me because... Stop a puppy in my pants! <laughs> that, was, that was a moment that... It was, they finally nailed that goofy, outrageous, over the top style of humor that they were going for. That is that completely random Will Ferrell Anchorman style comedy yeah. right there, where it's suddenly there, I have a puppy in my pants. And that made me laugh. And I was just thinking to myself, if only the rest of the movie had gone that far. Sorry, you have a party in your pants? (laughs) Yeah, yes. Anchorman, they have a party in the pants, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, that that was the gag that did make me laugh a little bit. I wish they made more fun of the whole – because at first, like, uh, Bert is sort of like a womanizer. Is a womanizer. Right. And – 
then his uh, change of heart when he tells Olivia Wilde this, he like deadpans like, "Well, that was a different time." Like I had that was one of my bigger laughs. laughs. Oh yeah, and she's like, "That sudden, was like, a now, few weeks now ago." Now it's fixed because oh yeah, that, that, that was a different time. So she could kiss him a few days later. I mean, occasionally there would be a line or a gag that would make me chuckle. Yeah, but they were few and far between, unfortunately. And I I never did buy at all that Olivia Wilde would fall for this guy. Not for a hot second. I was almost rooting for her and Anton to go. Yeah. I have that been that twist. Damn right Steve Buscemi gets laid. (laughs) But no, that would never happen because Steve Buscemi isn't attractive enough to get someone like Olivia Wilde. But Steve Carell is a little bit more conventionally attractive, (sighs) so it doesn't matter that he's a total jerk. He can still get the girl. I hate high school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just, it would have been nice if there was some sort of a twist like that. Like, that's what I was looking for. I think that was, I was so disappointed when that didn't happen. And she just, she magic, magically ends up with Steve Carell's Bert. And I, I was so disappointed, A, because he had been putting her through hell through for most of the movie. And then all of a sudden, you know, they make out for an awkward amount of time in front of Steve Buscemi before he's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go now. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, all right. I'll see you later. Oh, I forgot my coat. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, oh man, I, I feel bad that Steve Buscemi was in this film. Honestly, I hope he got paid well for this role. I mean, someone's got to help out Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe he had time in his schedule and yeah. was looking for a project, and I, you know, found I, it. Yeah, I, I don't know. That role is kind of the same one that he's had with like any sort of Adam Sandler comedies. When he crops up, I'm thinking, shoot, was the one that uh, so forgettable, uh, Grown Ups. See, I'm lucky in that I actually haven't seen a lot of Adam Sandler comedies, so I have not seen Grown Ups. Is Steve Buscemi in Grown Ups really? Yeah. Oh no. He's in a full body cast at one point. Okay, maybe maybe he's friends with these guys or something, or just really likes comedy. I don't know. He's kind of like the walking punching bag. He's like the scrawny one. But he's like really old now, isn't he? Isn't he like 50 or 60 something years old? He's 50s. Whoa, whoa. Don't throw him in like Alan Arkin's age range. <laughs> I honestly think Steve Buscemi could have been great as that Alan Arkin character. I would have been funny. He he wouldn't have been as curmudgeonly. Right. I think he could have put an interesting spin on that old mentor character. Because this sidekick role as Anton, it really gives him nothing to do except, oh, I'm going to have a falling out with Bert and then come back just because the script says I have to. What was the excuse he gave in the movie is because, oh, kids in third world countries didn't like magic kicks. Right. They wanted food and water. Yeah, it, it, the whole movie is supposed to be about their friendship, and it does not deliver on the promise of its prologue. Like, the prologue, no. to me, was probably the most successful part of the film, just because I was interested in those two kids and their lives and their friendship, and then suddenly it jumps ahead 30 or 40 years, and I was just like... What? I don't care about you anymore. <laughs> that central relationship, they just don't really sell it after that prologue. It's not as magical. All right. Before we wrap up, I got to talk about Final Trick. 
they make the audience disappear. Did you laugh at the post-credit scene? I did. Okay. Because it was just slapstick. They were just throwing everybody in carts and rearranging them and fixing them. And Olivia Wilde put the biggest makeup smudge on this guy's forehead because he'd gotten cut or, like, bruised or something. Yeah, I don't don't know. That didn't really work for me. And maybe it's because they had already told us, to a certain extent, how the trick Mm -hmm. was going to work. Like, they already explained that they were going to use knockout gas. So the implication is they knock everyone out and move them. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, well, that's probably hard and awkward. But I don't don't know. I think it was funnier in my head. And then actually seeing them acting it out, it was kind of like, well, yeah, I know this is what you did. (laughs) You're telling me what I already know. (laughs) Yeah, I I knew what was going to happen. It was just, I guess, funny seeing them, but I didn't build up any expectations. Okay. I knew it was just people going to be thrown down the stairs. It was going to turn into Three Stooges sort of slapstick. Someone's false leg is floating around. Also, I think you can tell that this movie, that I think you can tell the writers really didn't care about what they were doing, or, I don't know, somehow there was this huge disconnect between the material and I think what the writers were going for. The James Gandolfini character is such an unlikable character Mm -hmm. that it seemed really strange to me that... Bert and Anton would agree to work for him again at the end of the movie. Does that make sense? Like, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. At the beginning, he insults them. Straight. He insults them, and he, you know, he's his ter- he's a terrible father. He does. He's selfish. He doesn't care about his kid. He he only cares about money. Money. And my expectation was that at the end of the movie, Bert and Anton would tell him to screw off, and they'd go like start their own magic show or company or something gone rogue which we've seen before in movies Mm -hmm. and in comedies you know that wouldn't be particularly new but it would actually kind of make sense and i think i would find it more satisfying (laughs) Mm -hmm. if that was how the film ended as opposed to it just being like oh i'm a jerk but you won my contest so you get to come work for me again great i knew you had it in you boys right like, shouldn't they just be like, no, we're going to take this incredible, amazing trick on the road, or we're going to go, we, we're not going to give it to you. Yeah. But again, it's every, we want different things, we want different outcomes, but of course they, you know, they won the contest, they're going. But did they win at life, Monica? No. <laughs> No, they did not. No. <laughs> okay, and also, speaking of the indeed, is... Jim Carrey, like, does he have brain damage now? Is that what we're supposed to That's believe? That's what we're that supposed he, to believe. He he finally just, he actually did drill into his head. It was a tragic accident. That just seemed really mean-spirited to me. <laughs> like, that that joke did <laughs> oh, oh, not work for me at all. <laughs> but shoving a puppy down someone's pants, that's comedy. That is that is funnier to me that's than oh the guy drilled a hole in his head and now I think he Peter is mentally disabled. Begs to differ. You think Peter begs to differ? <laughs> it's all subjective. Whatever. I'm sure the puppy was quite comfortable. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that the the whole way they resolved things with Jim Carrey just was not satisfying at all. At least you're not arguing about how the world building was problematic. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was, but that's only because nothing was built well <laughs> in this movie. The characters, the that. story. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> nothing to see here. It's like they don't even have a final showdown with Jim Carrey. He just takes himself out of the picture. And that is not a satisfying resolution to that conflict. That's not fair. <laughs> like, at no point do they, is it like, oh, as you can see, our way of magic is better than your way of magic. It's just that plot line is suddenly removed. It, it yeah. was It's such a weird, disjointed movie. It, it would be like in Pitch Perfect, instead of them having to, like, battle in song against these rival teams, if the other teams were just kind of like, oh, we forfeit, we quit. Their bus got late, so they missed the deadline. Right, right. If that happened in one of those competition movies, the audience would be like, well, that's lame. <laughs> we wanted to see the big showdown. Yeah. We wanted to see the show. But no, nothing like that in Incredible Burt Wonderstone. Ugh. Well, a lot of things in Incredible Burt Wonderstone. <laughs> yeah, this movie's the opposite of Incredible. I mean, The Amazing Spider-Man at least was mediocre. No, I think you're being nice. Burt Wonderstone isn't even mediocre. It's it's <laughs> actually pretty bad, I think. Yeah. Like, I, 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 there's no way I would ever watch this movie again. <laughs> you might be able to persuade me to watch The Amazing Spider-Man again, but not The Incredible Burt Wonderstone. It's okay. They'll both be playing FX in a couple months or so. Probably. Double bill it. Thankfully, The Incredible Burt Wonderstone didn't do very well at the box office, I don't think. so. Sad Steve Buscemi face. Sad Steve Buscemi face, but at the same time, <laughs> I guess that means we won't have to sit through a sequel. That's pretty sure what that means. Now, if there was a spinoff all about Steve Buscemi's character or all about Jim Carrey's character. I want Olivia Wilde's female magician. She had something to prove. That would be an interesting movie. In fact, Monica, that, that reminds me. Do you have anything else you want to say about Burt Wonderstone? No. Okay. <laughs> I've been meaning to bring this segment back and I, I always forget, um, when Frank was hosting the show with me, we used to always do this thing at the end of the show where we would have a segment called Reboot This. Uh -huh. And I would like to bring it back tonight. Re rebooting, reboot this. And, I, and, and, and how Reboot This works is that you and I will pitch either a sequel, a prequel, or a remake of the movie that we have just discussed. And... If any agents are out there listening, <laughs> here's some here's some ideas for you, you know. So I will go first, and I will pitch this movie to you, and I want you to tell me what you think. I did not like The Incredible Burt Wonderstone. I would totally watch a movie called The Astounding Steve Gray, in which we actually get to see how Jim Carrey's character became a celebrated street magician. Ooh, so good. either a prequel film in which we see his rise to fame or a sequel in which he has recovered from his brain injury and is now seeking revenge on Bert and Anton at any cost. All right. Which are, does, do either of those sound appealing to you? I like the prequel version because the only thing that's coming to my mind is like a funny Batman Begins 
Yes. Like he meets a zened out Liam Nielsen and he must fight him with magic. And he has to practice how to hold his urine. And he has, oh, well, this is uh, the last Batman. He has to climb out of the cave. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jim Carrey lives in a cave. Hands. He's a street magician. He starts out as a street magician, so he's probably homeless, living on the streets. He finds a cave somewhere to live in. He trains to be a magician. He practices holding his urine. He practices slipping his hand inside people's pants without them noticing. <laughs> So that he can eventually do the puppy in the pants trick. Yes. I, I think there's potential for comedy there. There there might be. Especially scary Jim Carrey abs. <laughs> <laughs> I could just see the training sequences now with the Rocky music in the background. Stuff. <laughs> Nightmares. All right, Monica, your turn. If you had to make a prequel, sequel, or a remake of The Incredible Burt Wonderstone, what would you choose and what would it what would it be about? I don't know, maybe it's always a mistake to make the the straight man in the comedy the main focus, but I want to give Jane, Olivia Wilde's character, like a better shot than just being the happenstance love interest of Bert. Because first half of the movie, she like stands up to him, she tells him no, and she's actually pretty smart. And, you know, when Tuff gets going, she actually gets a job with the Steve Gray because that's she wants to pursue a career. Like, that's cool and unusual for a comedy, except now that's this recently has become more of a normal thing for the women to be like the straight character, the straight man character for the goofy guys to play against. Well, I think Olivia Wilde has a great comedic presence, and I would love for her to be able to goof out once in a while, I got to see it a little bit in Drinking Buddies when she was like a little, she was one of the guys essentially in a brewing um, company. And, you know, she gets to pretend to be drunk and she gets to, you know, act out. I got to ask you though, Monica, when you, when you say, are, are you saying you would want her to be like this smart, witty protagonist or would you want her to be like Bert and kind of be this dumb, goofy protagonist get tina fey on this she'll fix everything okay maybe she and tina fey could team up maybe and they could be two magicians yeah and she can say i don't need you anymore Bert and anton and maybe anna kendrick can be like the celine dion upstart and <laughs> try and take over the arena and then they'll do like a fusion show of like magic and singing i figured it out basically we've taken your pitch and we've developed it into the female version of the incredible <laughs> burt wonderstone but better <laughs> take the same movie just make everyone women <laughs> <laughs> but better but yeah, that probably that probably actually would be better. Anna Kendrick singing "My Heart Will Go On" <laughs> <laughs> while she does a magic trick involving. No, Olivia Wilde would do the magic trick. God, okay. get it right. <laughs> <laughs> See, and we've changed it up a bit. Okay. <laughs> All right, I think that's a it's pretty so good pitch. Vegas. <laughs> that's a good pitch. I I would watch either of those movies that we pitched. I would rather see either of those movies than The Incredible Wonderstone a second time. Womp womp. All right. I think that'll wrap it up for part two of our discussion of The Incredible Burt Wonderstone here on Cinema Fix. 
Don't forget to tune in next week when we will be discussing Spring Breakers. Spring Break forever. I'm so excited just to catch phrases with you. Oh, I have okay. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm I, I I'm looking forward to it. So we can just do a podcast of nothing but James Franco lines from this movie. Yes, I'm there. <laughs> All right, we would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the show. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place. All right, Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me online at the Twitters at MCastiMovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I Movies. They can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at BOFCA.com. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this weekend in Highland Cinema. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!